0: Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser, the Editor-in-Chief of Retinal Physician Magazine, and I want to welcome you today to the Retinal Physician Podcast. I'm joined today by one of my close friends, Dr. Jeffrey Heyer from Ophthalmic
1: Consultants of Boston. Good to be here. This podcast is brought
0: to you by Genentech Ophthalmology. Together with the ophthalmology community, Genentech is committed to changing how we address the leading causes of vision loss for patients. To learn more, visit ophthalmologyvision.com. So when both of us were in training, the party line was based on a diabetic retinopathy study that you do panretinal photocoagulation in patients when they reached high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And things have changed dramatically recently. What are some of the changes that we think of when we talk about the management of diabetic
1: retinopathy? Yeah, so so there are a couple ways to look at that. First, with respect to the treatment of proliferative retinopathy and high-risk characteristics, I think many of us are concerned about the long-term effects of panretinal photocoagulation. As you pointed out, that was really the standard of care, but we know that PRP has significant side effects, and that's you know loss of night vision, loss of peripheral field, uh, potential exacerbation of diabetic edema. There are there are a lot of potential downsides to panretinal photocoagulation, and along the same time we've seen the advantages of anti-VEGF therapy in terms of managing proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And we've had the DRCR studies that have shown us this. We've seen it in other smaller and larger studies that have shown really the the dramatic effect of anti-VEGF injections to shut down proliferative disease. At least in the short term, and in the long term with ongoing therapy
0: yeah i kind of break it down into how you just did it which is you know the the argument of of laser versus um anti-vegf in proliferative disease and then we'll talk uh, in a moment about uh, non-proliferative disease but one of the things early on wa- was this idea that well you can't really use anti-vegf especially in patients with a lot of neovascularization maybe a little bit of traction because this is going to lead to crunch And for our listeners really what happened in all these randomized studies in the in the anti-vegf arms how do they do did they, did they have a lot of bleeding Did they need more surgery what happened
1: yeah so i think what we found is the concerns about crunch were not really borne out. In fact, in, in most of these studies, if not all of these studies, what we really found was the the progression to more advanced disease, the, the progression to vision, vision loss was not seen with the use of anti-VEGF therapy. And in fact, the the concerns about things like anterior progression anterior segment neovascularization or neovascular glaucoma. Uh, tractional detachments really did not occur with the use of anti-VEGF agents.
0: And what about laser? We always kind of think that PRP works well to to prevent surgery, prevent complications. How did how did laser do in those studies?
1: So laser, while laser overall is good for the prevention of these vision-threatening complications, laser did not do as well as anti-VEGF therapy. It was relatively uncommon for patients with anti-VEGF therapy to progress to vision-threatening complications, you know, anterior segment neovascularization or uh, uh, progressing to vision loss with diabetic macular edema. So the studies
0: really showed, and and this is for almost all our drugs that we currently have that that anti vegf um, had less complications had had better vision results had lower rates of of adverse events. Why is it then that that people aren't using anti vegF as much as you'd expect based on those clinical trial results uh, in real life for these proliferative patients
1: yeah that's that's really the big question, right? Because the data from all these studies, whether it's DRCR, and we'll talk about strict diabetic retinopathy without proliferative disease with the Panorama study, but all of these studies have shown anti-VEGF therapy is is really extremely efficacious for prevention of disease, and yet it's not widely adapted by clinicians, especially retina specialists not just in the U.S., but abroad, and probably it goes for a couple of reasons. One is the treatment burden. These are younger patients than our wet AMD patients, and so these are often working age patients. And even in the studies which show you may not need to do it frequently, you certainly don't need it monthly, and whether you have to do it every eight weeks or every 12 or every 16 weeks, that's still anywhere from three to six to eight days a year that patients have to take off work to come and get their injection. So there's a treatment burden that is one of the issues. The, one of the other concerns is that diabetic patients in general are not always the most compliant, that in many respects that's what's led to this level of ocular disease, and so we've certainly seen patients who have initially have undergone the start of anti-VEGF therapy, but then have been lost to follow-up. And at least with laser, if you get in a a full treatment of panretinal photocoagulation, you have a pretty good chance of preventing. Uh, further advances. You still have all the side effects and complications, but at least that loss to follow-up is less of an issue.
0: And you bring up a great point, which is, you know, when we treat, say, patients with diabetic macular edema, we have something we can follow. We can follow their OCT. We can follow for changes say, for example, you have a patient with proliferative disease, you give them a few anti-VEGF, the the hemorrhage they may have had, the neovascularization is improving, maybe becoming fibrotic. You know, what do you use as sort of biomarkers to determine, can you extend the interval? Should you stay at a fixed interval? You know, walk us through the head of Dr. Heyer when you're treating a patient with proliferative disease with anti-VEGF.
1: Yeah, that, that really is the challenge. So what I try to do if, so if it's somebody that's new, I will treat them with anti-VEGF and we'll start off with a series of injections starting off monthly and then slowly spreading out and maybe going to every six weeks to every eight weeks and making sure we, one, don't see the development of edema, but also that we're not seeing the development of retinopathy or progressing progressive retinopathy. The problem is that ideally I would like to be able to see at some point down the road that I can get a fluorescein angiogram, a wide-field angiogram, and document that there is no further neovascularization, that ischemia is stable, and that's challenging because as long as they're undergoing almost any degree of anti-VEGF therapy, it's going to be hard to show that. So. For instance, I have a patient that, interestingly enough, I shared with David Boyer, who want, wanted to get pregnant, had proliferative disease, and we wanted to get her through that part. She she did not want laser. She was adamant. She didn't want laser. She said, I'm too young. I don't want those problems. So we treated her, got her stable, and then I held her off any anti-VEGF therapy for six months and did – a fluorescein angiogram at that point to look for any signs of progressive disease, and didn't see any, and said, "You know, I think this is as safe as we can be right now for you to try to start a family," which, in fact, she did. But if you know, if you're looking at an angiogram, say, you do and you do anti-VEGF therapy. If you do it at three months or even four months, you may still have the strong impact of the anti-VEGF agent and really not see any disease, but that doesn't mean they're well controlled yet.
0: So my patients here in Cleveland, many of them, it's hard to convince them to even come in for one injection, let alone a series. Are there a certain patient group that you would recommend this type of treatment? And, And conversely, are there a certain group that you'd say, look, you know, we're just gonna do laser?
1: Yeah, they're without a doubt. So I I agree with you. There are certain patients that come in that have demonstrated reliability in terms of their visits for for years, and they're highly committed to taking care of their disease. Their A1Cs tend to be under better control, at least at least now over the past couple of years their high blood pressure or hypertension appears to be controlled. I think those may be good candidates. On the other case, if you have people who have missed visits, who have been lost to follow-up for any significant lengths of time, their A1Cs are not well controlled, those are probably high-risk candidates for not maintaining the follow-up. And the fear there is you give them one or two anti-VEGF injections and then they're lost to follow-up. I think, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at the last year's PAT survey and from the ASRS, and it the while about thirty-five to forty percent of clinicians are still doing PRP alone, it's interesting that over fifty percent were doing a combination of anti-VEGF therapy with panretinal photocoagulation that they'll somebody will come in they either have some bleeding or they look like they're they have high risk proliferative disease lots of neovascularization that's a good patient to initiate anti-VEGF therapy but then after a series of shots deliver pan retinal photocoagulation. So you may have the long-term control without the concern about compliance. And while we don't have a lot of data supporting that, there aren't a lot of studies that have shown that exact approach. More than half of our, our colleagues do that. And interestingly enough, at least on last year's study, um, only five to 9% of clinicians were doing anti-VEGF therapy alone,
0: which brings us to the second part of the discussion, which is non-proliferative disease. It, to, in proliferative patients, it's, it seems to be a little bit more obvious, but but both ranibizumab and aflibercept are approved for the treatment of non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. In this case, as a disease-modifying behavior to to allow the retinopathy to improve, in the absence. Of macular edema. Why do you think that has really not gained as much foothold, even though the results are, are just as good? The Panorama results, for instance, spectacular.
1: Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think this comes even more to the the treatment burden without uh, an immediate gratification. So these are patients who are typically asymptomatic. They're they're they've been doing well. They don't really appreciate the risk that they're at. And certainly that risk of progression is slower. Roughly what? About 20% over the first year of these patients with severe NPDR progressing to vision-threatening complications. So they don't see it as readily and they don't feel like they're at that high risk. And so we've seen that even more so than what we see in proliferative disease, our colleagues are really not using this very often. And that same patch survey, you could see 70 to 80 percent of retina specialists said they don't use anti-VEGF therapy at all for severe non-proliferative disease. And again, as you pointed out, Peter, that's with overwhelmingly positive data supporting the use.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, the data is is as as powerful as it is, Um, It it, it is surprising that more physicians don't do, but I think you you really hit the nail on the head, which is a lot of these patients got into this situation because of their poor glucose control and they're in general working aged patients. So to get them to come in for these relatively fixed dosing um, and get an injection in the eye, it, it, it definitely is a hard sell. So hopefully in the future, when we get some of these longer acting agents, maybe um, other devices, we'll see the use of those devices in these patients with diabetic retinopathy. Jeff, I really appreciate your time today with our listeners learning about the current treatment of diabetic retinopathy, and I hope our listeners will turn up in the future at a Retinal Physician podcast. Thanks for being here with us,
1: Jeff. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Peter. This
0: podcast is supported by Genentech Ophthalmology. Genentech continues to work with the ophthalmology community to advance the understanding of serious eye disease, uncover new therapeutic options, and transform patient care. Learn how
1: at ophthalmologyvision.com.